Hi, this is John Deke with 25 Years of the Very Young Composers, a program of the New York Philharmonic. The music we're listening to is by Michael Rodriguez, who wrote this and orchestrated when he was 12 years old. It's called A Trip to the Moon. How did this symphonic music by a child come to be? Well, we're in the process of finding out. This is scene 18, the world opens, influences, and ideas beginning to coalesce. During the following decades, I had the privilege of working with many orchestras throughout the country as a composer. It's a long and respectable list, and each orchestra, believe me, every single time I came to a new city to work with their orchestra, bringing my work was an uplifting and treasured experience. Ah, just to stand near the conductor and at times conduct the orchestra myself, as untrained as I was, it was profoundly thrilling. And on top of that, to actually hear them playing a work which I'd composed would put me in heaven. That is, if the work were properly executed, orchestrated, copied, and reasonably close to being on time. Let me restate right here that besides being no genius by a long shot, I was famous for errors in the parts, misjudgments, sometimes fatally late with meeting deadlines. In short, I was n- I'm not a detail person, even though I talked about details in pieces. I knew this. I knew this quality of mine. And I would seek the help of others who were gifted a little bit better than I was. But still, the buck always stops at the feet or the cranium, or better yet, the heart of the composer, in this case, myself. But oh my God, when it does work and the pieces come together, the musicians aroused, the conductor on board, the experience is truly like no other. But the New York Philharmonic was first, last, and always my orchestra. Before I came to be in a position as a composer to be able to work with all these orchestras, there was the necessary and long training to prepare myself. Board members and others around the Philharmonic were consistent and indispensable supporters, such as Phyllis and Slade Mills, Boulez, Nick Webster, and Leonard Bernstein himself, and later Kurt Mazur, Deborah Borda, Susie Rose, Danny Bedoni, Dale Fraze, Carolyn Ramsdahl, a host of others. I, I would spend all day naming them all. have so much, so much to be grateful for. We would hear more about these people later. The orchestra to whom I would constantly return, the orchestra to which I could never hope to repay for its kindness to me, its employment of me, support of me and my family, and my life's inspiration was and always will be the Philharmonic. Playing with and composing for them has been what I deem a miracle of blessings. I've often wondered why I was and currently still am the only professional composer in the orchestra, playing in the orchestra. It continues to baffle me and is part of the reason I wound up doing precisely the work I've been consumed with over the past 25 years. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Not that this series of reflections need to be totally linear, because they're not. Anyway, tours, traveling with the orchestra to see the world, and not simply as a tourist or backup employee, but as a sort of cultural ambassador— even though each city we'd play in was a maddeningly short visit, jumping back onto trains, planes, buses, still a quick splash, or in some cases, a quick deep dive 
into an awesomely rich and tantalizingly different culture was, to use the phrase of the time, mind-blowing. Especially with LB, the tours were festive celebrations of his far-reaching genius and popularity. In many occasions, he was no less than a major dignitary or a rock star. Yeah, I admit to a certain envy of him, especially if at the end of a concert we were leaving the stage while he was still doing his curtain calls. Yeah, at that moment, I would feel like a bit of an employee at the time instead of an artist. But I now put that feeling in perspective as an ambition to put the orchestra in more of a spotlight. After all, I was heading the Artistic Advisory Committee, and it was incumbent on me to promote that. But also, I admit a personal desire to leave something of myself, something in fact inspired by L.B., that would be a contribution, if only small, even if just tiny, to the future of this beloved orchestra. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Anyway, just a few words about my first major tour with the New York Philharmonic. It was the 1970 tour of Japan. It was the year of their great expo, and the country was finally getting back on its feet and into the international community after the disaster of World War II. The description of this three-week tour and its profound effect on me would by itself joyously cover many pages, but suffice it to say that the audiences were electrified by our performances of Mahler, Beethoven, Copland, or Bernstein. They would weep as we played the Japanese national anthem. Some of them appeared to know more about classical music than we did, and every spare moment I had, I would eagerly devour any aspect of Japanese culture I could. Kabuki theater, no dramas, bunraku, you name it. The expo itself was held in Senri, which is just outside Osaka, and I would join the immense crowds to see all the international exhibits. The German pavilion, in particular, touted its long musical history and ascendancy. And stopping there, to my shock, right away I saw a percussion soloist, my dear old friend from Interlaken and the Chicago Little Symphony, Mike Ranta. He had, in the meantime, emigrated to Germany and already seemed to tinge the Midwestern twang we shared with a distinct German accent. (laughs) Mike not only introduced me to the German staff there, but more to the point, to the traditional Japanese musicians and percussion instruments. I think my sonic vocabulary and understanding of form and texture doubled in less than a week. In places I never would have been able to access without Mike, I was able to hear and interact with traditional Japanese and Buddhist music. I was able to acquire some prayer drums and small gongs, which I cherish to this day, and even a shakuhachi, an end-blown bamboo flute on which I practiced endlessly until I could manage at least a reasonable sound. And to top it all off, I made friends with a man named Toshi Yoshida, a music lover whom I'd met at one of our concerts and was a middle-level uh, manager or whatever at Sumitomo Corporation. More importantly, he was a mountain climber of no inconsiderable experience and immediately offered to take me and my friend, cellist Jerry Appleman, on a climb in the Minami Alps National Park on our day and a half off. The climb, such as it was, was memorable for its vast cultural difference from my mostly American experience. Right away, Toshi met us at the Tokyo station, fully dressed, 
as if he were going to climb the Matterhorn. In lederhosen, Swiss hat with feather, ice axe, crampons, and rope. As this was August, I gently asked him if it might be a technical climb we were going to do with snow and glacier. His answer was inscrutable, which I took as a discouragement from asking further. Whatever the nature of it all, Jerry and I were delighted to experience this different aspect of local culture. As it turned out, the mountain, Yatsugatake, was densely populated with hikers and climbers of all ages, the path well-worn, and as a first for me, any land above treeline was so heavily traveled, that is like tundra, that we had to walk between ropes so as not to be trampling the tiny bits of tundra remaining. There were minders or guides all along the way, and at the summit, no snow, of course, there was a large restaurant and a beautiful Japanese inn, or ryokan, where we were treated like visiting dignitaries, every need immediately taken care of, and we ate Japanese style, no chairs, uh, and after an evening's stroll, slept on tatami mats on the floor. All this on the summit of a major mountain, no less. Such a difference from American mountaineering, which at that time was still largely a wilderness. And now, 50 years later, most Americans might be familiar with Japanese cuisine and culture, but believe me, it was completely new to us then. Toshi and I would go on to climb nearly every major mountain in Japan, including Mount Fuji, over the years that the Philharmonic would tour there, which was at least every four years. And this was just the start of my deep connection to this country and among many other countries and peoples which remain to this day. But see, here I go again, after all, spending two pages on a single tour. So don't let me deceive you with the phrase, just a few words about, or suffice it to say, again. <laughs> Yet it is unquestionably true that the approximately 80, yeah, 80, tours that I took with the Philharmonic to countless countries, some of them uh, Australia, New Zealand, India, China, South and North Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, Scandinavia, all of Western, Southern and Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, later Russia, Israel, Turkey, Greece, Mexico, all over South America, regrettably not Africa, although I had been there myself, but that each country, each culture, each music, each art seemed to burn itself into me and call me to an even more intimate relationship. But based on what? As a composer-performer? Yes, certainly. But something more than that. I didn't know yet exactly what. But the pressure was building, the desire more urgent, year by year, to find an answer to the original questions. Here they are again. What is the future of the symphony orchestra? Where will the new orchestral music of the future come from? And the old sneaker, what is children's music? Perhaps I would soon come across an answer. <laughs>